So have you read much Stephen King? I had a real Stephen King phase back, gosh, it started with, I think, eighth grade. And our teacher read us a short story from Night Shift. Okay. And that's the coolest thing ever. And so I went and read a bunch of Stephen King stuff and kept reading it up, I think, through college. And then at some point, I kind of drifted away. But yeah, I've, I mean, The Stand and Salem's Lot. I still remember a bit from Salem's Lot where the vampire, I think it's the vampire, one of them, cuts off the stairs into the basement. Have you read Salem's Lot? I don't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Remember he cut and, and embeds knives in the basement so that guy. They're very visceral. Yeah. yeah so like he, the light won't work and he walks down five steps and then falls onto these blades. And oh, yeah, that was yeah. a uh, exciting bit to read as a teenage boy. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Good thing I'm undead. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a long week, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Forget it. I'm going to be an accountant now. Yeah. Keep getting blades in my eye. I think I'll count the number of blades down here. One, two. Yeah, I got into Stephen King, actually, believe it or not, a bit late. I started reading his stuff. I remember our friend Simeon was reading the either The Stand or It. I think it was It. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it has that impressive size to it when you're looking at a even a paperback version. It's so thick. Like, wow, that must be a great story. <laughs> and, of course, it's been such an iconic, particularly his early stuff is so iconic. But... I hadn't read his actual fiction. The thing I had read, I think I mentioned this before, is his book on writing. Right. After he had the car accident and after he nearly gave up writing, he wrote that as kind of a catharsis. I had writer's block, and the way to get out of it, I thought, was to read some stuff on how writers write. And That's what an academic would do, by the way. It's like, I'll read a book about this. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing pietist, nothing, uh, yeah, not, not work out and change my diet. I'm just going to read something. <laughs> Um, but, and it actually really helped because his argument about writer's block was that you're, you're scared. Hmm. He said, you're, you're afraid of the disapproval of people that might read this. Right. And it was like one of those clicks, like, that's exactly right. I, I'm worried my advisor will read it and not like it. Or the defense team that are at the Viva or, you know, even worse, it gets published. And then, you know, there's some, you always live in fear, right? Of that yes. one book, one article that completely disproves it and you should have found it and everyone else has read it obviously that kind of thing yeah they call that the lizard brain i mean it's this idea there's a bit of your brain that's fight or flight and so the lizard part of your brain is like it's not good enough people are gonna tarn feather me i'm gonna get killed or exiled or there's this fear bit and you do have to kind of just ignore it don't you yeah and it sounds like a superpower when you say it's a lizard brain Oh, I don't think it's that cool. I guess it's some evolutionary thing. It needs thing, to be that cool. Yeah. It's like the hippocampus or something. Hippocampus? Hippopotamus? Yeah. Hippo. Hippo. Um, hypnotherapy? Hypno... I, I forget. <laughs> no, but you're right, because it is... it the, the feeling is fight or flight or fight, or fight or flight, yeah. whichever way you want to say it. Fright, flight, and fight. I, uh, I, I don't speak pretty, but... <laughs> The, the the fact is, is feels not unlike, you know, first day of school when you're in kindergarten or something. It has that kind of anxiety of what's going to happen. I'm, I'm, I feel very afraid. And it's weird because you're writing mm-hmm. and it's it shouldn't necessarily feel that way, at least in specifics. But you know, I read Stephen King that way. Then I saw Simeon happened to have this book. He was reading it like on the flight over to America or something. And I thought, well, that looks good. I, I, you know, and so I got some stuff on Kindle and started going through at least the classic early stuff. 
And I really liked it. I was actually really surprised. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, that you said you read it for a while and then you moved on. Did you have a sense that you had kind of outgrown it? Was it kind of passe now? You wanted to move on to deeper things? I think I just kind of got a little tired that at a certain point he was doing this sort of sci-fi Tommy knockers type. There's aliens that show up and there's a town and, and you know, it, it's, I think I would get back into it. I don't mean it's bad, but it's like I knew it felt familiar. And so I, I guess I started reading other stuff. Might've also just been college made it harder to read for fun because you get overwhelmed True. with stuff. So I don't remember exactly, but I, I just, I went through a, very much a phase so I remember reading Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. I read that before the movie Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Like some of those things yeah. I had already read because I had that eighth grade teacher got me into it beforehand. Plus, you could say the book was much better after. Well, the and there's the snide power is always great. Definitely, definitely. Though with Shawshank, the movie is almost as good as the book. If sometimes it it draws out even different themes. The movie's so great, and and uh, it's been a long time since I read that. It's really like a novella, I think. But a bunch of those, mm-hmm. the, I think it was the Rich, Richard Bachman stories or novellas. Yeah, it was Green Mile. Green Mile. Shawshank. A couple of movies came out of yeah. the, that. The Running Man, which they made a movie, but I don't think it's very good. And I think he did that under an alias because yeah. of the factor you're talking about, which is everyone saw Stephen King and they thought, oh, it's going to be... You know, vampires falling on knives. Right. It's going to be so obviously that. He knew he had more in him, so he wrote it differently. And it's very interesting. It was still very popular. And then only later do we find out that it's him, mm-hmm. which I think speaks to his mastery of storytelling. Yes. And, and his work ethic, too, that he's going to write so much that, you know, I'll just create a pen name and keep writing. I, I can write two yeah. books a year. But back to the, the fight and flight of writing, it is interesting that you do feel very naked writing. You don't see your readers. So you would think it would be distant. But there's a yeah. way of, of when you have a blank sheet of paper and it's your words and your ideas, you, you feel very vulnerable. Uh, preaching can be that way. I don't find it as vulnerable because it's a bit of, well, here's an interpretation and some stories and, and here's what we should do with this passage. And I know there's a bunch of different ways to go and it's not like it's sort of your line in the sand, like this is what we have to do. But a book kind of has that ultimacy. And, it does. And, and so you, you really feel like you've staked a claim on something and you just don't want someone to show up and go, ha ha, like the guy on The Simpsons, you know, uh, yeah. and, and laugh at you. You're like, oh. Ralph, uh, is it not Ralph, it's... Uh, yeah, I can't oh, remember I his name. I should know this. Yeah. No. But no, you're right. No one would see a sermon as a magnum opus. If you get a B plus, metaphorically, on your sermon or your talk, I actually did a, a men's group this morning and I don't wing it by any means, but uh, I'm prepared. But there's always this sense of a little more sage on the stage, teacher, professor style. And homiletics and preaching is different. But it's not that I'm not going to remember it per se, but no one's going to walk away going, I need to record this and mint this and like this is going to be bound (laughs) and you can check it out from the library, at least in my life. Whereas a book, you're thinking, you know, somebody years from now can look it up and completely... (laughs) Find the flaws in it. And it, it does, yeah, the naked thing. I was going to make a naked writing joke, but mm-hmm. I decided not to. <laughs> because we do naked podcasting, and it's too close to the truth, right? Well, uh, we started topless. <laughs> but The kit's coming off, eh? Yeah. That was for the excitement factor, but then we realized it was only our voices. <laughs> so we were kind of dumb. No, but maybe the part of that is also the scrutiny of people where you don't hear the criticism. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, if like if one of you read it and gave me feedback, uh, both on the style of the writing and the content, let's say, I would say, oh, thank you. But someone just reading it and going, ugh. Like, you, you just have that yeah. weird anxiety. Because you're absolutely right. Because in a sermon, you can read their faces. You can say, oh, I can see that they're bored, which, you know, always happens to me. Or you can see, oh, this is working. So you can you can kind of in real time respond. Uh, but if you're right with a book, you're totally disconnected from your audience. And unless you get a book review three years later, which you may not even have that. So you it just kind of ooh, goes down this hole. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is very frightful. Well, and I have this... Uh, I'm starting to put my finger on what, what the challenge is. So I have a YouTube channel, of course, and I have some videos. Uh, still make them. What I do to make the videos is I do a live mic recording like we're doing now. And then I, I'll edit it a bit. And, you know, if I stumble over something, you know, I'll look at my notes and come back and then cut this, the, the bad section. So it's a little bit edited, but it's a one take. For me, it's, it's almost performance or a bootleg copy hmm. of something I've taught. But... You know, so occasionally I'll, I, like one video, I, I was talking about Charlemagne and I said Constantine, like in the middle of the video, the wrong name. And everyone's like, OMG, how dare, you don't even know which one they are. And it's like, no, I did, it slipped with the tongue. And th- but there's a sense of a video doesn't fit in any of those categories. Mm, mm-hmm. If I did that in a book, it'd be much more problematic. But if I happen to be talking to you right now and I said, oh, you know, Constantine, and you would say, wait, Charlemagne. Then it's just a, a brain hiccup, mm-hmm. more than anything. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, we have these. Um, th- there's a, a concreteness of print still etched in our minds, whereas spoken word, even if it's recorded and played back, is not quite as. It doesn't have as much gravitas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and there's this sense of when you're writing a, a book that you hope is scholarly, you know, the audience is going to even more nitpicky. I mean, that's what they've, they're trained to do is to pick apart arguments. So that's the last people you want to... Yeah, they suck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they can't order at Burger King, you know? It's like, well... Like, what do you mean, do I want fries? <laughs> what is the I that is implied? I'm going to order a Whopper for my id and a chicken nuggets for my <laughs> super ego. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's how you get second dinner. It'd be a hobby. Exactly. Freud, that's why Freud got big in the later part of his life. He was eating three meals. Yeah. Actually, I just made that up. I don't know if he got big or not. You have no idea. Yeah. We, yeah. Well, back to the horror piece. It's interesting. The reason why I was asking you about if you got over it, because we've talked about this a little bit, but there is this sense that genres have importance. There's like an alpha genre, maybe, you know, just great literature, fiction itself, something like, you know, Withering Heights or Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and we talked about this before as well, Mark Twain also, like Stephen King, lived down to the impression that popular means bad and that stories that use supernatural elements, again, here's the inklings, supernatural elements are themselves suspicious because you're not stuck in the real world or using real human emotions and experiences every day. And so you do get this sense for some where they, they want to kick the ladder away, they they keep pop culture stuff or a Stephen King book as their indulgence that they read on the weekends, but they don't really want to talk about it or tell anybody because it becomes shameful in some ways. Yeah, so we do have these different genres, and I guess the you're absolutely right. You kind of think about supernatural and history and nonfiction and kind of the weird boundaries between these things. And, and uh, you know, when does a short story become a novella? 
And w- mm. what was the first novel? And can a novel have poetry? And can poetry be prosaic? And you get into all these weird kind of, how do you define things? But there's certainly books like Stephen King that's really interested in the horror, that it, it mm. wants to scare you. It wants to have a monster. It wants to give you a thrill. It wants to show something demonic. And, yeah. you know, and I, there was an interesting bit I read a couple of years ago, and it might have been in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, but it had something about film, and it was David Cronenberg, who's a Canadian filmmaker, versus um, somebody I can't remember, Catholic. What movie did he direct? It was that movie with the thing in it and had the people in it. Mm. You know, oh. it was a good one. Mm. Who did The Departed? It might have been the guy that did The, the Departed. Scorsese? Martin Scorsese. Oh, Scorsese, yeah, yeah. I, he did one horror movie, yeah. Shutter Island. Shutter Isle. Shutter. Shutter. Shutter or Shutter? Shutter, like the shutters in the window. Yes. But there you do, Shutter. Shutter shutter down (laughs) island. Could you shut an island down? (laughs) Could you? I have shut this party down and this island. And you sometimes get this. Peter Lightheart had an article in, I I think it was First Things, about why Protestants don't write good fiction. Mm -hmm. His argument was that things have to be made extra metaphorical always. It's almost like we're hyper-Zwinglian huh. in our understanding of literature. Uh-huh. And there was a lot of clutching of pearls and this kind of, oh, how dare you, you know, make fun of the group that you're a part of kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And are you going Catholic? And he's like, no, I'm just saying it's a shame that some of the great fiction writers are always Catholic, seemingly. That was his impression. Yeah, yeah, there is a Catholic imaginarium, imagination landscape, like Dante and... Flannery O'Connor and well, and that's just the thing is Catholics. There are those they they will take on horror, and you're, I didn't even thought about Dante. Yeah, there's a horror story, right? I mean, really? Yeah, exactly. So, in other words, it's it's not quite as simplistic as he made it out. But no, I, I think there's this sense with horror that it's kind of like Finneyism for literature. It's it's just playing up the base emotions, the, li- the lizard brain that you mentioned. Yes, yeah, it's ooh, making people scared. Yeah. Segway bell, ding ding ding. <laughs> Dong. And, Season two, but, we need a new one. Dong. But I think you can make an equally opposite case, which is that love is probably the most consistent desire and, and instinct of people. And so a book that might be overly sappy or overly play on those motions could have the same charge. Because anytime you're playing with emotions, it, it has that sense of, well, you're just, you're just, you know, you're goosing up the, the, the interest in the book because it's, it's this kind of a thing. In other words, I don't think horror should be seen as too easy. It's not easy. No, it's not. In fact, that's why it invites parody, because it's so easy to make fun of it. Sort of, it was a dark and stormy night, and I heard a creaky sound, and, you know, you sort of, it it invites the scary movie-type parodies. But there is this wrestling with forces of, of evil that we kind of enjoy on a narrative scale that there's something in us that we do like a good scare you know you could say roller coasters are like that you could say a scary story a ghost stories kids by the campfire type thing the uh the cronenberg director and scorsese i think it had something about cronenberg said well the difference between me and scorsese is scorsese believes in the devil and i don't and oh. and i got to thinking that because cronenberg if you've seen his movies it's often about madness so there's still horror and fear, but it's that, you know, I could become a fly. Like in the movie The Fly, he did that famous remake. The guy turns into a fly, but there's not a force of evil. It's really kind of like a weird, you know, what would happen. But there's not exterior forces at work. But Scorsese, I think, has more of 
demonic sensibility. There's certain people that are either corrupted or there's forces that are corrupted. We enjoy those stories for some reason. And we wrestle with this idea of what happens, you know, when, when someone is really evil, what would that look like? Uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So let's tell a story like the exorcist where, yeah. you know, what happens to this little girl when the devil possesses her and the priest tries to save her? Well, and there's this bit in Tolkien where he talks about, you know, Lord of the Rings is quite a dark book in certain places. The Hobbit less so, which is why I didn't like the movies. They tried to dove, they realized the Hobbit is so light and breezy that they added in all that dark stuff to huh. make it feel like the, the subsequent three, to bridge it, really. Yeah, that the the spider in the Fellowship of the Ring is terrifying. She, Shirog or something. Shalob. Shalob, daughter of Shira, who was partner of He-Man. He-Man. Yeah. Yeah. And Grayskull, Grayskull, which I was not allowed to watch Grayskull because it was too dark as a kid. Because <laughs> My parents were worried. <laughs> yeah. And he cackled really loudly. But Tolkien has this thing where he says that the presence of evil in literature is a requirement almost. Huh. Even in, say, your, your, your sort of basic love story, real simple short story that, you know, your average college freshman writes. The point of it, it, Tolkien would say, and I'm riffing on it here, it's not exactly what he says, is the love story only is really a love story when it might fall out, when it might not work, right. when the love might be unrequited or one of them might die uh, along the way, something like this. And if you think about it, that is very often part of the tale of a love story is will they, won't they, are they going to yeah. you know, ever? And there's this element of suspense, Tolkien used to say, that is itself theologically driven by the idea that there's something wrong that might break along the way. Huh, yeah, that's interesting. And I remember learning long ago that all stories and, and fiction and narrative is rooted in conflict because I was very bothered. I thought, no, that can't be true. And I tried to think of a story that didn't have conflict. Or if you think of a, you know, a story you write without conflict, man gets up and drinks coffee, and you know, that's a terrible story. You want something to happen. Somebody knocks at the door and tells him he's got to move out of his house, like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You, you've got to, yeah. uh, you've got to have a problem. Or as Flannery O'Connor said, you need a gun hanging on the mantelpiece at the beginning of the story, and by the end, someone has shot that that rifle, that gun. Yeah, uh, the gun has to go off. Uh, there has to be a bang of some sort, and that relates to the demonic. That we need violence. We need, we need a scare. We need, we need a threat in our stories. Now, do we need it in our lives? I, I don't think so, unless you're some kind of evolutionary type. In the worst sense. In the worst yeah. sense, right. Hyper-evolutionarialist. Like you need conflict all the time. Yeah, and so yeah. conflict makes us better. But there's not many people that really would subscribe to that, I don't think. It's kind of Nietzschean, yes. Yeah, that's a pretty weak view of evil. It's just a mild discomfort that makes you stronger. Right, right. That which doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. But yeah. But Besides that, we don't really need conflict in our lives, I would argue, but we like them in our stories. And maybe that's what Tolkien's after, that it, it's kind of a symptom of a larger disorder. I'm, I'm laughing in my head because there's an old sitcom, I think it was Frasier, and somebody quoted that line, whatever kills you doesn't make you stronger. And the, the very witty re reply immediately is, yes, but not everyone makes it into that second category. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, so the fear isn't helped by that, that bromide. Right. That's true. Evil makes sense in fiction. In fact, we invite it. No one has to say it, but obviously no one wants to be part of a horror movie in real life. Correct. But people are attracted to those types of things. And there's something about maybe when one is not going through personal tragedy or experiencing 
evil in their life day by day in the in that tragic sense mm-hmm. then those things become ways of at least intuitively getting at the question of there are things wrong there are things that 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 break and there's sin and these types of things but whenever something actually tragic happens no one wants necess- i would i would argue no one really wants a big philosophical conversation about what evil is at that moment they want to grieve right some of us, I think you were telling me about this. Real evil is boring. Yeah, Simone Bay. Yeah, real evil is boring, but evil seen through the lens of a story gives you a way to reflect on it that's not itself evil directly. Right. It can be exciting. You need a villain. Um, yeah. You, you need a Lex Luthor. You need something happening. But yeah, that, that a fictional evil can be entertaining but real evil is boring it's it's the soldier at the holocaust running the ovens it's you know i'm just doing my job type thing the banality of evil real evil is boring and then she makes the contrast that imaginary goodness is boring but real goodness is 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 amazing or beautiful when someone really does a kind act for someone in your life it's so astonishing it kind of stops things. But in a story, if it was only, you know, Thomas the Train, if you ever read those, there's stories without conflict almost. Love them. Love them. Nothing ever happens, and he always goes back. Yeah, kids' books are like that. They always go to bed at night, which is why, because yeah. parents are always wanting them to, you're reading them at bedtime. So Except for old, you know, children's tales, which don't shy away from the problem of evil. I mean, they have the evil characters. Uh-huh. People used to say, oh, are you going to read you know, those types of stories to your kids? And I'm like, yeah. My daughter hates Voldemort. She's, she's, she's frightened of him. Yeah. Even at the age of eight, she knows there's no guy without a nose that's going to come around and speak you know, parcel tongue and try to do magic on me. But she gets to understand that there are these evil things uh, in the world. And kids don't ask the what does this all mean question until they yeah, reach a certain right. level of maturity anyway. And kids figure it out. They understand there's mean people, and and they they identify pretty quickly with what's you know good versus evil type stories, like in Harry Potter or, or other books. And and when they're toddlers, and you're you're just showing them pictures of trains, which is funny because they don't, you know, you read them these books, and they really don't know. Yeah, they're really dumb. They're so stupid. Yeah, they really are. Kids. So they recognize the helicopter. Two-year-olds are just yeah yeah. 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 That's a joke that I always throw. Uh, I sometimes say that in class. I'm like, you know, my two year old is like worthless. You know, <laughs> I mean, he, he can't even bathe himself. You know, just kind of <laughs> pretend he's an older guy. There was a great fit on Saturday Night Live 25 years ago or so where Sam Kennison, who was the host, used to be a stand up comedian. He was supposed to be this first grade teacher and he's yelling at the kids because they're drawing smiley faces on the sun and he points out the window he's like look do you see a smiley face out there and all the kids are crying but he's kind of like the worst teacher ever but there is that yeah they put smiley faces on the sun and they draw a helicopter and like you don't even know what a helicopter i mean they know the word but they don't understand that the blades turn and you get in and it flies they just kind of they just know things they know words to some degree you know son thomas is kind of a pushover exactly exactly (laughs) What's a pushover? <laughs> it's interesting, though, the idea that... It's what your sister does to you. What? That's right. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting, though, that this idea that goodness in the story, it is kind of boring. My mind immediately went to comic books. There, I was reading backlogs of some Batman stories, and they do this a lot with his character. The idea that Batman as the ultra-good, almost campy 1960s guy is actually some of the most boring storytelling possible. Right. The bad guys are more interesting. Right. 
And so what they've done in more recent pop culture stuff, like comics and other things, is there's a conflict or a tension within them. The recent Marvel movies, the good guys are fighting now in this whole thing that they're doing, Civil War. Mm -hmm. There's no purely good because that's boring. But in real life, to, to sort of experience uh, true love, that altruism, the, the someone you know without any consideration of their own needs takes care of somebody else, that is amazing. We want that. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, it's that weird inversion. We don't want the sin and the horror thing, but we like that in the story because it's it's more easily, I don't know, it's more easily dealt with or thought about or experienced. But the Knights of the Round stories of these ultra pure perfect knights, just it's kind of like oh, that's boring. That's right. It doesn't that's quite. Right. It doesn't ring true at all. Yeah, and you're so right about Batman because that's a criticism of some of the movies that the villains overshadow him as well, whether it's Jack Nicholson, whether it's uh, some of the later... Well, in Batman 2, the Tim Burton Batman, they keep wanting to introduce villains. So you have Penguin and you have mm. Catwoman. And and they get almost more screen time than Batman, probably. And and yeah. so you, you they do, like you're saying, they get more interested in the villain than the, the hero. And part of Batman's question is, is he got a little bit of a villain to him that he's obsessed with murder and he he kind of, in terms of his parents' murder, and that he's willing to go further than Superman. That Superman yeah. is kind of the goody two-shoes and Batman is is kind of the grittier, willing to break some bones and scare people. Do you, yeah. do you think there's a limit to how far that can go? When does it become... Do you, did you ever hear about the movie um, The Human Centipede that was controversial a few years ago? Oh, yeah, it's horrible. We better not even describe it. It's so, it's so revolting of an idea. But I think it's interesting is the reason you and I know about it, though I don't think you and I watch horror movies really at all, is because that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, they, they took it maybe a bit too far in the graphic sense. Mm-hmm. But if you were to maybe read that story, it would it it would be no less horrific, but it would at least uh, avoid the the makeup and all the stuff that it takes to make it look like that. Whereas, I mean, it, you know, if a wonderful story about this hero comes out, you really don't get many books like that. And if you do, you and I don't go, oh man, that, I've heard that book is amazing. Right. You know, the, the 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 one perfect you know knight of the round table story. The only exception. Now, here's the thing. The only exception. I was just, I'm always looking for counterfactual things when I'm making a case like this. The only exception would be the Gospels. There's something about the way the Gospels read where the people around Jesus seem so very often to miss it, to, un, to not get the story. They confuse things. Maybe they're greedy. Maybe they're lost. Maybe they're challenged in some all different kinds of ways. Maybe they're prideful and they, they're telling Jesus what to do. And his response always just seems to be the perfect one. Not just, obviously, because he's Christ, but in the sense of even the way he deals gently with some and stronger with others. It's like this, this tone that's, that's really great. The Gospels are the only example I can think of where the truly heroic self-sacrifice hits me and I don't go, well, that sounds fake. Whereas if that were like a movie, I would say, oh, this, is, this is so canned. This is so, you know, the person is too perfect. Right. Although... I'd still argue there's plenty of conflict in the Gospels, not only the Pharisees and others, but his own disciples. And and I was reading something recently saying, trying to make the argument that the Gospel of John could be read as as tragic, especially in that opening, the opening um, prologue there, because the one through whom all things were made came to his own and they did not know him. So you've got this weird irony that the the guy through whom all things were made is gets rejected. And so he's getting rejected 
perpetually by his own disciples, by his followers, you know, Palm Sunday yeah. and all that. So so he is this this goodness and yet he meets resistance. So that creates yeah. a conflict of, you know, what's going to happen. And of course you would expect the the, the goody two shoes Superman would just defeat everyone. And instead, when he gets crucified as a criminal, then it's it is a bit of like, wow. If you don't know the story, you would think, well, I didn't see that coming. Well, and you know the way that they've tried to get rid of the Superman Goody Two Shoes thing? How they made him? A, they've made him a dad. There's a son. Uh, <laughs> Are you talking about Superman or story. Jesus? Is this a Da Vinci Code thing again? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Totally. I'm gonna make some money. No, the whole Superman thing. It's. Like something like the real Superman dies, and then like an alternate universe Superman comes to the DC world, and in his alternate universe, he's married to Lois Lane and he has a boy, and so he's still this like, you know, Boy Scout in terms of his interactions with things, but he's a he's a troubled dad trying to make it home to be with his son. Uh Ah, so they've they've added that human element. Anyway, just just interesting because they always call it the Superman problem. How do you make a guy that's so right? perfect um vulnerable and that's that's the latest attempt no you're right about the conflict piece i I would actually think mark is just off the top of my head but mark is the same way mark the the refrain throughout the book from the jewish community is who is this man you know the calming of the sea you know who they they feared him and they asked who is this dude come on come on man well and the tragedy is the tragic piece of it is knowing that the actual end of mark is the soldier, the Roman soldier, so much conflict, obviously, between Jews and Romans. The Roman soldier at the foot of the cross says, truly, this is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. The, this, this irony, this, this, this sense of everyone's going, who is this guy? And it, it takes the, the outsider from a Jewish world that actually it's on his lips who this man is. Right. Yeah. And so it's so interesting. The conflict is not within Jesus. It's within Jesus and the fact that his mission is kind of a failure in the sense of he cannot reach his own people. I mean, he reaches some in the disciples, but but his his mission, and this is Donald McKinnon, the British theologian from the 60s and 70s, sort of thinking in a weird way, Jesus' mission is a failure in the sense of he's not able, you know, he's not able to preach in a way that converts the Jews. Failure is a provocative word. Yeah, I think he's doing a how or was, yes. Yeah, that so, yeah, that that kind of shock. But but thing. but part of what he's trying to say, I think, is that by embracing his failure, it becomes a more magnificent triumph. That even well, a failure. Well, it, it is the story of the triumph. cross. It's the cross. Yeah, the cross yeah. is is looks like a failure. The hero of the Jews is killed by the oppressor of the Jews. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go shock jock with that word failure, but <laughs> in the sense that to to, to his point, I, I agree with him to the extent that too often the story is told as if it's like this is Sparta. And he's merely there, and it's all great. Yeah, he's just all pretending wonderful. to have problems. because, Or it's just a few people that have trouble with him, mm-hmm. you know, the, just the Pharisees. You know, the Book of Romans, Paul is dealing with this a lot. Why did so many of my people not embrace it? It's right there all over the pages. Right, right, this, this great irony. that Although the irony is consistent throughout the Bible that, that God reaches out to God's people in the Old Testament and the New to some degree, and people are resisting and it's like, yeah, why yeah, would yeah. you turn it? I mean, it's kind of the question of Calvin. How could you turn down grace? And and the answer is right. you wouldn't if you really ha- understood it or had it, right? Except then mm-hmm. you see people perpetually, whether it's Israel or, or the early church. Um, you know, I'm thinking of some of the stories in Acts where people are turning away. Yeah, yeah. Or Hebrews 6, trampling underfoot of the mysteries uh, right, language. Right, right. 
you know, Paul's line in Romans, not all Israel is true Israel, is actually a really grieving one. Mm-hmm. It's not a snide, well, screw them. You know, I don't care. Mm-hmm. You're, not, you're not really Israel. It's more like, this is hard. My brethren said no. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It, it, I think maybe that's, going back to Peter Lightheart, that's the one of the points he's making is you, you need a deep sense that that tension, that irony is there, and you're okay with it, and it, it actually gets woven into your storytelling. Huh. Whereas his point is is that, at least by and large, by and large, Protestants do Pilgrim's Progress. Right. It's it's so overtly teleological. It's got this end horizon, and it's you you don't doubt that it'll ever happen from the beginning to the you know from all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. Just a question: of How does it play out? Which makes it less fun, I think. I mean, I've never really liked Pilgrim's Progress for that reason. I understand it's got a lot of interesting storytelling devices that are new, particularly in a Shakespearean age. To be so overtly allegorical was was pretty new uh, amongst Protestants, at least. But that being said, I've, I've never found it. It doesn't need a reread for me. Huh. It's been a while, but I found it very clever with you know, the way he's mapping kind of a psychological terrain into a story. So I, I think I might have enjoyed it more than you did, but I understand different strokes for different folks, etc. I don't care about you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care about your mind. What if that's how we always took criticism? Yeah? Well, in your face. <laughs> and we get Italian accents. Yeah. What are you doing? Ronner and yeah. Baltazar, you want to take this outside? Yeah, I want to take this outside. <laughs> outside of Vatican II. This idea that like they, they take their coats off and they start like bumping chests like, yeah, you want to go? <laughs> the bit I remember is Wallace and Gromit, the Weir Rabbit. Have you, uh, are you well-versed in the Weir no. Rabbit? Remember he, no. Uh, no. No? No. What is this? You haven't ever seen the Weir Rabbit? You haven't watched that with the no. kids? Uh, it's such a, Wallace and Gromit, it's such a classic. But the one guy says... Bloomsbury rules, like he's not only going to fight you, he's, he's saying like what the rules, I guess for, I guess in England there's different boxing rules. So he goes something like Bloomsbury rules and he starts doing this awkward, doing his fists. Popeye, you know, fist spin. Exactly. exactly. But that's really interesting back to narrative and conflict because we see that the Bible itself, and, and Balthazar gets into this, that there's, a, there's this riding tension in the Bible of what will God do with how God is rejected. And that's kind of almost yeah. a larger theme throughout the Old and New Testament. And for Balthazar, that kind of gets, is going to get resolved in the book of Revelation. And for him, he kind of thinks it might mean some kind of universalism that ultimately God will triumph, but he's, he's not sure. But um, th- this, this idea of this conflict may, is buried so deeply in us that we tell stories that also have conflict which again is the Inklings, mm. and it reflects that narrative yeah. conflict. But then the weird bit is we don't really want to live lives of conflict. Yes. But I, we've attracted to stories in it, be they biblical or Stephen King. Yeah, which is, I think, the reason why, again, I mean, we just had this tragedy happen in Manchester. If someone were to, again, philosophize or try to sum this up poignantly, my instinct is to be like, shut up. Like, this is not, the t- this is not right. what we want. Don't, don't, like, this is not... The Odyssey moment. We don't we don't write a book on like this. The same thing with nine eleven. People would try to describe what it meant and um, right. Uh, ask ask. I get, I get sometimes you ask hard questions, but I always recoil to that because I'm like, look, the point is to grieve at this point. You right. don't you don't want this. But in a story, it's able to be unpacked. And, and I remember with Ralph Wood's class, Ralph Wood, careful when he was going through Lord of the Rings, his very interesting understanding of the way Tolkien. Never really shows evil. It's very often off camera. 
you know, it doesn't glory in Sauron. It's really just kind of a wistful eye off in the distance. It, but it's always looming. Right. It's always yeah, that's there. That's good, yeah. And, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And so here I was actually doing some thinking on the problem of evil and this, this question of conflict. But, you know, obviously I don't want any tragedy in my own life. I, 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 you know, everyone wants to avoid that. Right. Yeah. And that brings up the question of, of, that happens occasionally for Stephen King or Quentin Tarantino, the filmmaker, is are you glorifying evil? Are you making people more evil by exposing them to stories of violence and torture and unredemptive yeah. figures? And their answer is, is one I kind of agree with, which is no, you're not, because it, it, they're just stories. And someone yeah. who might act that out was going to do it anyway. They may have modeled it on something, but by and large, 99.9% .9 of the population sees those stories and they don't go, well, I'm going to go do that. You know, they, they understand yeah. the fiction and they don't have this impulse. So like Tarantino has actually said, he really enjoys violence on screen and would actually amp it up more, but he, he knows it, it wouldn't, it'd go yeah. beyond an R rating and then he wouldn't make any money basically, but it doesn't bother him, but he's not a violent guy. I mean, he's not done carry a gun shooting people. So it's really interesting. So, well, and a lot of people have pointed out that that anti-society thing said that, you know, this, you know, you got to have mature ratings on albums and video games and all this type of stuff. Uh, and I get a certain age appropriate uh, limit, but I, I never bought into the idea that this plants seeds that makes one a serial killer. Right. That's the kind of like rankest Freudian psychologizing mm -hmm. of the way this stuff works. Yeah, and I would go one step further. There actually is evil in the world, so that's why story and, and conflict at, at a lesser level, which is why stories are going to have them. Yeah, that's right. Because otherwise, they don't ring true. That's right. And at a certain point, if it's just about evil and there's no conflict, then it's not really a story anymore. Even The Exorcist kind of has this priest that's trying to save the girl and and seems to at the end of the movie, but he dies. Uh, but and I think the sequel reveals that he didn't really defeat the devil or the demon or whatever. I yeah. forget what it was supposed to be. But um, at least in the first movie, it, there's still good versus evil, even though evil gets a lot mm. of screen time and is, is pretty darn scary. Uh, so most all stories have some kind of conflict. I guess even the human centipede did too, to some degree. Yeah. But um, I think that's a movie that... Who is the famous movie director? Roger, or not director... Uh, uh, critic Roger Ebert. There's a few movies Ebert, where yeah. he just walks out, and I think that's one of them where he said, "There's no, yeah. without any redemption, I, this is, this is not really a movie." Which how would he know? He hasn't seen it until the end. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. think there's that, and there was some some Australian movie with that was very yeah. violent that he walked out on. But what's interesting to me is that's on narrative aesthetic grounds. It's not that this is immoral. It's the point of this isn't really a story because a story needs to have conflict between good versus evil. And if it's just evil, yeah. then it's it's kind of the flip side of a story with no conflict. There's or a story yeah. of only goodness of Thomas the Train doesn't do anything all day. And that's not a story. Yeah. Until his friend punches him in the face. And now all of a sudden I'm interested. Nah, just got it. Now I'm now I'm in on it. But as we both know, at the end of the day, Thomas just goes goes back to sleep and there are no no real problems. So there's a yeah. story without conflict because problems need to persist to be interesting. Well, it sounds like we need to pick this up in another episode. Yeah. Maybe the question maybe the question will be, can you go too far with evil in a story? That's that's an idea. Yeah, we've kind of teased at that, but we might yeah, we might reconsider that and 
Yeah. And we can look at movies. Yeah. It, it, can something be too evil? We'll, we'll think about Maybe that. Maybe that could be the season two finale. There we go. Which is next week. <laughs> just what? No, good. Uh, no, what? what? <laughs> I've been fired. All right, man. All right. Well, remember to like us on Facebook and uh, iTunes reviews always help. And get the word out to your friends. Good night, Denmark. We, we love you.